Our first Bible reading is from Isaiah chapter 26, and you can find this on page 710 in the Pew Bibles. And we're going to be reading uh, two chunks of this uh, chapter. So that's Isaiah 26, page 710. We're going to start by verses 1 to 6 and then do 19 to the end. A song of praise. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. God makes salvation its walls and ramparts. Open the gates that the righteous nation may enter, the nation that keeps faith. You will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord, the Lord himself, is the rock eternal. He humbles those who dwell on high. He lays the lofty city low. He levels it to the ground and casts it down to the dust. Feet trample it down, the feet of the oppressed, the footsteps of the poor. And now verse 19. But your dead will live, Lord, their bodies will rise. Let those who dwell in the dust wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. Go, my people, enter your rooms and shut the doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until his wrath has passed by. See, the Lord is coming out of his dwelling to punish the people of the earth for their sins. The earth will disclose the blood shed on it. The earth will conceal its slain no longer. The reading is from Hebrews 10, which you'll find on page 1208 of the Red Pew Bibles. We're looking at Hebrews 10, 26 to 39. Hebrews 10, verses 26 to 39. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, and who has insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Remember those earlier days after you'd received the light when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, 
you will receive what he has promised. For in just a little while he who is coming will come and will not delay. And, but my righteous one will live by faith, and I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. Thank you, Royston. Please, let's keep um, Hebrews 10 open. This is the last in a series, uh, for the moment at any rate, in Hebrews. Let's pray as we uh, think a little bit more about those words that have just been read. And it is our, our heart's desire as we've sung, Lord Jesus, to know you more. We pray that as we hear this word of warning and a word of promise, um, it would be your voice we discern beyond the pages of scripture or the preaching. Uh, please help us to meet with you and to know you better. That's our, our longing and our desire. We ask it, Jesus, for your sake. Amen. We are a society today which is eager to eliminate risk. You probably noticed that. But of course, we can eliminate risk, or to some degree we can, but we can't eliminate danger. And it's no surprise that actually warnings feature very highly in our daily lives. Um, Companies have got to cover their backs against use of their products, which might endanger people. And they do so often with slightly comical results, like the bag of peanuts, which warns consumers may contain traces of nuts, or the Rowenta iron, which advises Always remove clothes before ironing them. I I heard about a a children's cold remedy which cautions its users not to drive or operate heavy machinery after taking a dose. And we can think about warnings like that. We can laugh them off because they seem so obvious to us. But often we're actually very insensitive to warnings if the danger doesn't seem apparent to us. Think about the warnings for the people of Florida, the coastline, before that devastating recent hurricane. Um, Those warnings were encountering stubborn resistance from people who simply didn't want to take the warnings seriously. And that reminded me in turn of the way the emergency services had to resort to pretty brutal tactics before that New Orleans hurricane, Katrina, a few years ago. They actually had to request people who wouldn't budge to identify their body parts in advance of their death by writing their names on them in marker pens, which was not particularly subtle, was it? You will die if you stay here any longer. Leave or face the consequences. That was the sort of tone of the warnings there. Now, the great Puritan preacher John Owen called Hebrews an epistle of warning. And certainly there are warnings every few chapters. And It's a bit scary because their intensity rises with each occurrence of the warning. So our verses in chapter 10, the warning bit, is longer and more stark than anything we've had so far. I think I got the the mega warning in chapter 6, and I didn't particularly enjoy preaching that. Well, I've got chapter 10 this time. This is more stark than anything so far in the letter. And he's almost saying this, look, if you abandon Christ... Don't even bother marking your individual body parts. That won't help at all. You're exposing yourself, he'd say, to the fires of hell. 
So verses 26 to 30 are amongst the most terrifying warnings of future judgment in the entire Bible, as far as I can see. But strikingly, they are balanced by verses 32 to 39, which still dare to hope that the Hebrews have got glory to look forward to. So I've got two headings today, warning of future judgment and the encouragement of future glory, just for the two halves of the passage that was read to us. Now, in fact, the warning for the future, that was implicit in what we looked at last week, because we discovered there that some of the Christians this guy was writing to had got into a habit, a bad habit, of not gathering with other believers to give and receive encouragement. And he doesn't see that, the writer, as a sort of neutral thing, as we might. You know how the sort of reasoning happens in our head? We might say, well, well, it's just the strain of getting the figures in for the year end, and I needed my lions at this point, so I didn't make it to church. Or, oh, come on, Simon, you know, it's a real battle to get three children out the door, and I'm so stressed when we finally make it, I can't take anything in. All sorts of reasoning that sounds pretty innocent and understandable in one sense. But this guy, the writer, sees where it all might end. And that's why you've got this really spine-tingling warning for the future in verses 26 to 7 to start with. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we've received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. There's a chilling moment right at the end of Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. This is after Christian has passed through the gates of heaven and another character tries to get in and is then shown to a door in the side of the hill. And Bunyan comments, Then I saw that there was a way to hell even from the gates of heaven. And that's sort of the force of these two verses. Hell is prepared to consume the enemies of God, but that label doesn't only describe those who've been lifelong antagonists of God and his people. People will end up in hell, Bunyan was saying, and I think he gets it from scripture. People will end up in hell who were somehow once at the gates of heaven. They received the knowledge of the truth, but they deliberately kept on sinning in spite of what they knew to be true. So, That's a warning which we are intended to take to heart. I think um, psychologically we sometimes have a slightly perverse streak which takes pleasure in the Bible's teaching about judgment. And we think, well, we can take pleasure in it because it applies to other people. Never mind that the Bible says that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I'll admit, I'm afraid it sometimes suits me to take pleasure in in judgment for other people. I sort of have a perverse Pharisee streak in me that says, oh, they've really got it coming to them. And maybe others will face God's judgment, but this passage warns me not to be one who, having known the truth in my head, actually fails to live the truth. We can't have Jesus Christ in bits and pieces. If I want him as Savior, I've got to have him as Lord as well. And if I turn away from Jesus as Lord and deliberately keep on sinning, then inevitably I'm turning away from my Savior as well. 
and no sacrifice for sins is left, he says. So it's, it's a warning of future judgment for those inside church buildings, not for those outside church buildings this evening. And as I said, the language is frankly terrified, a fearful expectation of judgment and raging fire which will consume God's enemies. Somebody once wisely commented that it's unwise, dangerous to speculate either about the furniture of heaven or the temperature of hell. So it's not a good idea to speculate about those things. I think that's right. And people often ask, if I, if I really believe this sort of language that's used in Hebrews 10 and elsewhere is literally true, and if I reply, no, the language is metaphorical, you can see a sort of look of relief comes across people's minds and across their faces. But it slightly misses the point that the language is obviously metaphorical. Um, Jesus spoke about the fires of hell, but he also spoke of hell as outer darkness, And if you think about it, those two images can't both be literally true. You can't have flames and darkness. But the point is that they are metaphors, and the reality they describe is awful. More awful, awful, I'd suggest, even than the physical agony of of being burned in fire. So we we mustn't take a wrong-headed comfort from the fact that this language is metaphorical, we're being warned to be very afraid by it. Now, our instant reaction is to ask whether this sort of judgment is actually justified. And that's what he pursues in the next bit of the paragraph. His argument starts by looking at the sanctions um, by God, which backed up his standards in the Old Testament. So verse 28, anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. And it suits his argument to mention that sort of thing because his readers were tempted to return to Judaism. So he argues, you know, you know how seriously God takes it when you reject his revelation? He always has done. It was a capital offense. But he argues from that revelation in the Old Testament to the greater revelation which has come through Jesus Christ. Verse 29, how much more severely Do you think someone deserves to be punished who's trampled the Son of God underfoot? Who's treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them? And who's insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said it's mine to avenge, I'll repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So we're familiar with that argument style. You're arguing from the lesser to the greater to make it a sort of silly comparison. If you get detention for being rude to the school dinner lady, what's going to happen to you when you spit at the headmaster? Something far worse, of course. And he spells out graphically how these people sin against a greater revelation. They've trampled God's son underfoot. In other words, it's obvious Jesus' person and work are, are hugely significant, but these guys in this picture here, are like builders trampling something of value under their hobnail boots. So what? They're treating as an unholy thing the blood of Christ. 
And you sometimes get this. It's frightening to me to hear of people who had their roots in biblical Christianity dismiss Jesus bearing our sins on the cross as cosmic child abuse, which has happened in recent times. That's to treat the blood of Christ as something unholy. Theologians do it. We could do it, he's saying, by undervaluing what Jesus did for us on the cross. Thirdly, they insult the spirit of grace. Um, I don't know how we might do this. You might refer to life-changing Christianity as emotionalism or um, manipulation or sinister brainwashing. Lovely the way he's called the spirit of grace here. Uh, When the spirit came, God brought his grace to people, his undeserved love. And of course, the spirit changed their lives completely. And we must watch out if we ever laugh when we see others moved to tears, if we ever explain away the work of God and his spirit as a result of just manipulative techniques, uh, that's a real insult to God's Holy Spirit. No wonder the, the warning is so serious. For we know him who said, it's mine to avenge, I will repay. And those words were spoken originally I think to reassure God's people that God would avenge them if their enemies opposed them. God would repay. And if he's going to clear his people, don't you think he'll avenge Jesus Christ, his son, even more? Of course he will. It's a dreadful thing, he's saying, to fall into the hands of the living God. So I hope that's just walked us through the the warning section. We need to take this warning of future judgment, seriously. Membership of a church is not enough. These Hebrews had been members of churches. One of the perils of being in a denomination like the Church of England, that we sometimes forget this. We sometimes think that membership of the denomination is the same thing as being a Christian. But clearly it isn't, according to Hebrews. In fact, actually... Our Church of England foundation documents, the 39 articles, articles are clear about this as well. Article 26 starts like this. In the visible church of Christ, the evil be ever mingled with the good, and sometimes the evil have chief authority. Seems pretty clear as an implication that it won't be a surprise to encounter people who've actually turned away from Jesus Christ within the denomination. But we've got to bring it closer to home as well. It will be possible for people who've been part of things that all saints actually to turn away from Christ. In fact, each of us has got to actually bring it even closer to home and ask ourselves, will I take care to ensure that I don't turn away from Christ? Uh, It's possible, you see, for the process to start while I'm still a member of the church outwardly. I think the challenge is to spot the process early on and not to make allowances for the small beginnings of the decline. It is significant when I gradually weaken it in the habit of reading the Bible on my own. It is significant if I, in the language of Hebrews 10, get into the habit of not meeting with other people in a a Christian gathering. Dropping off in Sunday attendance or turning up on Sunday but ignoring God's will for the rest of the week, for my marriage, for my kids, uh, for whatever, 
trying to get away with what I know is wrong and spiritually dangerous. If I've received the knowledge of the truth, it'll be unimaginably awful to turn back from it. Don't do it, says Hebrews. Don't do it. Please, don't do it. I mean, the warning comes again and again. I could do a few more don't do this. Please, brothers and sisters, don't do it. That's the warning of future judgment here. But the brilliance of the guy as a pastor is that having given this really bold warning, he also offers the encouragement of future glory. Let me read 32 to 34 to start with. Remember those earlier days after you'd received the light, when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering? Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison, joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property, because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. And we're given new information about the people who received this letter at this point. They had, at the start of their Christian lives, undergone persecution. Now, I don't know exactly what bit of the sort of various waves of persecution what. It all began pretty early on. I think AD 49, the Roman Emperor Claudius evicted Christians from Rome. You get a little mention of that in Acts because Priscilla and Aquila had to leave their homes and move east at that point. And state-sponsored persecution obviously began very soon after the church was born, whether that's Rome or Jerusalem we're talking about. Acts has lots to tell us about the apostles' many trips to prison. Or whatever the wave of persecution. These Christians, they hadn't run for cover when other Christians were opposed. They had identified with them. Maybe they visited the Christians in prison, and from that moment on, of course, as if they're wearing a target as well, they were known to be Christians themselves. They risked imprisonment and loss of property themselves. So he's saying, you've been willing for that to happen in the past. And it just raises a question just in passing. I wonder how aware we are as a church of how brothers and sisters around the world are persecuted and the impact that has on them. And just because today is our, our gift day and we're focusing on our needs year-round, let's not forget our brethren around the world. Um, one thing that's happened in the last couple of years in terms of our, our giving is that we've shifted some of the things we used to give to on our gift day in terms of worldwide needs of the brethren around the world into our year-round budget so that 20% of our income goes to external mission partners around the world, many of them in situations of, of pretty serious need. And it's good that we're aware of that. In our culture, I suppose here, there is less obvious persecution for us if we declare our support for Christ's disciples. But I think there are things that we can do anyway. What would be the equivalent for us showing solidarity with other Christians who are going through the mill? You think about it, how it might work out. I mean, I just scribbled down here, signing an online petition to ask um, governments around the world for fairer laws in their treatment of 
Christian. I think Jeremy Hunt led that sort of thing. Barnabas Trust do that sort of thing. We might get involved with those sorts of things. It doesn't sound like very much, does it, actually? But if I'm not willing to do that kind of thing, I'm unlikely to offer more costly support to persecuted Christians. Will I be willing to part with my possessions in some way by supporting persecuted Christians financially and identifying with the cause of Christ in my finances? And these Christians in the past, certainly, they'd had their possessions in the right perspective. They joyfully accepted the plundering of their property, it says, because they knew they had better and lasting possessions. I like the way there, what looks like a comment on the Hebrews' past, the way they'd sort of lived as Christians before, is actually a comment on future glory. He's saying we can afford to part with our earthly possessions because they are not lasting. You can find amazing statistics on Google. I'm told that on average in our lifetime, consumers will each go through 12 washing machines, 10 fridges, Eight cookers, three dishwashers, 35 pieces of IT equipment. That must be old stats, mustn't it? 145 other electrical household appliances. That's old stats as well. We're a sort of disposable culture, aren't we? Earthly possessions don't last, and so they aren't all that significant with the certain glory that's going to be ours when Christ returns. We've got better and lasting possessions there. And we can afford to be relaxed, therefore, when the children damage the car door or whatever it is that happens. Future glory. And that emphasis on future glory clarifies in verses 35 to 38. I'll just read them again. So don't throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you've done the will of God, you'll receive what he's promised. For in just a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. And I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. He's quoting there from Habakkuk, who was a prophet when Babylon was overrunning the known worlds. Habakkuk has asked, how long, O Lord, why didn't you do something? Maybe the Hebrews were asking that question. If God's supposed to love me, How come Christian brothers and sisters are suffering and it doesn't seem to be getting any better? It's been going on for years now. And if you think you could never talk like that after years of persecution, you don't know your own heart particularly well. But tenderly, very tenderly, he calls on them to keep going. Keep going. Now, yes, they've done well in the past, but as one wise Christian has put it, the only proof of past conversion is present convertedness. So keep on keeping on. Don't throw that confidence away because of future glory. It's going to be richly rewarded. And I love the little footnote, the last verse of the chapter. But we don't belong to those who shrink back, do we? And are destroyed. But are those who have faith and are saved. Sometimes these warnings of Hebrews have been enough to cause genuine Christians to doubt their salvation. Because if you've got a sensitive conscience, you're aware of your sin, you know you aren't perfect, some people will think, oh, trampling God's son underfoot again. And that may not be true. They may have sinned, but not in the persistent, deliberate, willful way that Hebrews is describing. 
I like the story once I read about an elderly woman. She was a real Christian, but she felt that her love for Christ was so cool, she wondered whether it could be real at all. And she was talking to her pastor and telling him about how she felt. So he took a piece of paper and he just wrote something on it and asked her to read what he'd written and put her signature underneath. Well, he wrote down, I do not love the Lord Jesus Christ. And he just passed a bit of paper over to her, gave her a pen, and she looked at it in horror and said, I can't possibly sign that. Of course, that was the converted person speaking. Jesus died for me and I love him. And for the writer here, the signs are that his readers are in that category. But just in case, he puts both destinies side by side in this verse. Believe and be saved, or shrink back and be destroyed. So those are the two headings, the warning of future judgment, the encouragement of future glory. And... I didn't choose particularly this passage for the gift day, but those two possible destinies are what our gift day is all about. That's why it matters so much. And that's what's at stake. Warning of future judgment, the encouragement of future glory. Which are you going to back with your finances? But more important than that, which will it be for you? Because the call of this passage is for each of us to choose our destiny. Let's pray together. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your mercy and kindness to to us that you speak clearly and uh, in black and white terms that we can't miss the importance of in your word. We thank you for that kindness, and we pray you would help us to weigh your word carefully. For any of us here who are tempted just to drift, Lord, we pray you'd draw us back to remember times in the past when we were really excited about the Christian faith and about knowing you. And we pray you'd help us to recapture that and not to drift from the wonder of having our sins forgiven and your spirit at work in our lives. Please spoil sin for us and show us again how amazing Jesus Christ is. And quicken our hearts to love him and live for him day by day. We pray it, Heavenly Father, in the great name of Jesus, for his sake. Amen.